Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. You know, irrelevant. They just care if salvation works. They don't really want to study how it works. You know, they, they, they view it kind of like electricity. As long as I flip the switch and the light comes on, that's all I care about. You know, I don't even open the hood on their car. As long as it gets me from point A to point B, I don't care what's going on under the hood. I don't need to have fuel injection explained to me or the internal combustion engine. That's how a lot of people are thinking about their salvation. And you've got to realize how sad that is. If you think about it, this is more like you being trapped in some horrible blizzard and somebody from the church goes to great lengths, risks their life to save you. You wake up in a hospital and find out that they rescued you and to say, well, I don't care how you did it. I don't want to even hear your story. I don't want to hear the trials or the struggles or how you got this all accomplished. That would be so rude and so awful. So as we study tonight, the mechanism of our salvation, Christ's death, we call it the atonement. We're going to look at that tonight. This is an important topic. And if you love Christ, you're going to want to know What does the Bible have to say about how we were saved on the cross of Christ? So that's our topic tonight. Before we get into it, why don't we bow together for a word of prayer? God, I know I assume probably far too often and too much that we're all here as adopted, born-again Christians. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to assume that. I think some people think I assume it too little, I suppose. But God, we want to think that if there are those here among us, This is all an academic discussion because they haven't been rescued. They don't know what it is to be born from within, to have a new heart replacing their old heart of stone. Then, God, I pray pray for them. As we talk about the atonement tonight, this might be a night of you working through these passages and these topics to draw them to yourself. And, God, where I intended to go at the beginning of this prayer, for those of us that are saved, what a a great privilege it is for us to sit in an air-conditioned building in a padded chair with pens and paper and tools, the printed Bible, to be able to look into your word to study the rich and very costly transaction of our salvation that took place on the cross. So God, make this a great time to inform us, not as though we're studying an engine in a car and how it works, but more how the one who paid the ultimate price to save us went about doing that and what exactly took place on that cross 2,000 years ago. Give us a clear sense of that tonight. Help us to appreciate the various iterations of this through church history. And let us ultimately come to a place where at the end of the night we appreciate with a kind of thanksgiving, a profound thanksgiving for what you've done for us in the atonement of Christ. Guard our minds as we study now and let us be thinking your thoughts after you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you've got your worksheet. Let's begin here. Four quick points talking about the supremacy of Christ's death. The supremacy of Christ's death. That should come as no surprise. And yet, those who are not acquainted with the Scripture... Maybe they've been growing up in our culture without any good teaching from the Bible. It may come as a surprise what a central feature the death of Christ is, and we need to think about that. Clearly, it is the cause of salvation. The whole point of us being made right with the living God comes down to the death of Jesus Christ, him spilling his blood on a cross at a place called Golgotha. That is the focal point, the apex of God's redemptive work. Take, for instance, Romans chapter 5, verse number 9. Since, therefore, we have been 
justified, which is the theme of the book of Romans. It is the most important word we could look at in that book in the first eight chapters for sure to see that we are made righteous before God as sinners being declared right before God. We've been justified not by his life, not by his love, not by his his coming, not by his teaching, not by his wisdom, but by his blood. We've been justified by the fact that he died on a Roman cross. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? This is the whole point. We've looked at temporal salvation. We clarified our study is on eternal salvation, salvation that makes me right before God. And it all comes down to the death of Christ on a cross. Real quickly, the necessity for salvation is necessary. The death of Christ is necessary. We can certainly infer that from Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, where Jesus is there in the garden of Gethsemane and he goes falls on his face, and he prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now remember the context of everything leading up to this scene in the garden. He's praying that he would fulfill his course, his work, that he would do what God has called him to do, to bring people to God, that they may know him, the only true God, and Christ whom he has sent, to do that, to accomplish this thing that the Bible is all about, to get us right with God. Uh, He says here, if there's another way to do this, let's let's get it done that way. And yet in this text, we certainly can see that according to God's plan, this is the will of God. We can infer it's the only way to accomplish the goal of getting us right with our creator. So it is necessary for salvation. We cannot do without it. If you had everything in the Bible but the death of Christ, we got a problem, huge problem. Muslims want to say Christ, of course, was not crucified on a cross. The great prophet of God, they may call him that, though there's greater prophets in their thinking, certainly didn't die on a cross. Well, you take the cross out of the Bible, you don't have what the, what the Christian message is all about, and that is getting us right with God. You can have a paradise all you want, but if you don't have the death of Jesus Christ according to the Scripture, you don't have salvation. Letter C, sin's atonement. We're going to use that word tonight because it's such a frequently used word in the Old Testament, and I want you to write it down. Kafar, K-A-P-H-A-R, is the transliteration of this. The root and its various cognates are used some 165 times in the Old Testament. The basic root meaning of this word, worth jotting down, is to cover. It's also used of putting something on. It sounds a lot like, if you've been around my teaching, trying to explain very clearly in the Bible, to anoint. It has a very similar meaning here, to smear, like to paint to cover something up. And certainly as we apply it to the problem of moral sin, we've got then this interpretation that shows up in the translation that it's sometimes translated to pardon. The idea of pardoning, to cover, you got a problem, let's get it out of the way. Now that's not as good as eradication in our mind, but this is the common word used for the problem of sin being dealt with. It is covered. He doesn't doesn't have it there as an issue anymore. Kafar, atonement, to atone for our sin. I, I thought since it's such a ubiquitous Old Testament term, I would take you to a passage there, uh, have you jot it down, Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 in the middle of a very clearly uh, all-consuming, and by that I mean it's the consummation of God's plan as he looks forward to the, the fulfilling of what New Testament salvation is all about, dealing with sin. Here's the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 where it says 70 weeks are decreed uh, about your people and your holy city, Israel and Jerusalem, to finish the transgression and all this, by the way, if you've been in my teaching or anybody's teaching that's, I hope, biblical on the unfolding of the 70 weeks prophecy, uh, the, the apex of that is, is the crucifixion of Christ. 
And in this, as it sets up to talk a little bit about that in Daniel 9 prophecy, in the Daniel 9 prophecy, it says it's going to finish the transgression, put an end to sin. Here's our word, kafar, to atone for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now that's a tall order. That's a big list on God's plan to fulfill in these 70 weeks, which takes place at 69 weeks, by the way. Still a week left for Daniel's people in his holy city. But to have sin atoned for, iniquity atoned for, to have it covered. And you can see in the context with these four phrases, to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Stuck right in the middle of it is this idea of atoning, smearing, covering, pardoning the problem of sin. Sin's atonement, letter D. Certainly, if you read the Bible and culminate the theology of the Old Testament with a New Testament focus, you clearly have the centrality of Christ's death. Look at these kinds of statements. You don't have this about any other aspect of Christ's ministry. When Paul says, you know, I wanted to focus very clearly and, and have nothing else. Now, of course, this, this is purpose discussion and, and, and hyperbolous. He's going to say more than this. He's not just a repeating one phrase, but he's all about making clear this particular doctrine. And that is what happened on the cross. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I want to talk about Christ and the one primary thing that needed to be preached in my travels through Asia Minor, my missionary work here among you in Corinth, is that you understand the crucifixion of Christ. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 Far be it for me to boast in anything, he says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to it. I love those last two phrases. But the idea here is, this is what I'm all about. This is the thing I glory in, I boast in, I take pride in, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.14, he has canceled out the record of debt that stood against us, the problem of sin, with its legal demands, that's a great phrase we'll get back to, and he set it aside by nailing it to the cross. A very, a very uh, uh, rich imagery here of the crucifixion having the problem of sin actually nailed to the cross. That's the image, to have it nailed to the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Which, by the way, for all of your friends that believe in baptismal regeneration, like your Duck Dynasty friends out there, you need to remember passages like this. If when you get saved, you're getting saved by dunking people in water, which was the context here. He's thinking about who is baptized in Corinth. If that's the moment of salvation, then for Paul to make a statement like this is ridiculous. Because it is not water baptism that saves you. And that's the context here is water baptism and who baptized that guy or who baptized that guy. And this he says, I didn't come to do that. I came to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. I'm all about preaching the cross and the power in changing people's status before God, which is what 1 Corinthians is going to tell us about. That is what I'm all about. And I didn't want to obscure that in any way. Last one, 1 Corinthians 15, the end of that book, he says, I delivered to you as what was of first importance. Now, we're always going to list a few things in this passage that are important as it relates to the gospel, but notice how it starts. Also what I received. Here's what God gave me, the gospel to preach to you guys. First of all, at the top of the list, Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. Now, this is the weird thing about Christianity. The focal point of the message of the New Testament is this dark Friday afternoon where Jesus is killed and murdered. That's the focal point, the centrality of the message of Christianity. Everything focuses on that. Important for us to see the supremacy of Christ's death. It's a bit ironic. We celebrate the Lord's Supper, for instance, reminding ourselves of the central tenet of Christianity, which is he died. And that certainly 
should lead us to think about the implications of what actually was happening there, and that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Let's talk about some theories throughout church history in terms of the atonement. I have not listed these in chronological order because really that's kind of difficult because many of these were popping up at various times in church history and overlapping and kind of recurring and rising to popularity in various times. And you'll see as we go through these, there's some truth in all of them. I try to point that out. Certainly there are aspects of them that are important, but we're going to try to look at the full scope of what the Bible has to say regarding the atonement and not falling into some of the historical errors that we've seen in focusing on just one aspect of the atonement. So how did God cover our sins with the death of Christ? How did he take care of the sin problem by dying? That's the question at hand. And let's start with the first one that was very, very popular in the early church. I would say it is the predominant view of the early church for the first few generations. Which, by the way, some people think, well, if it wasn't going on in the early church, well, then it isn't good. Matter of fact, I was just having a conversation about theology this week with someone saying, well, one of the reasons a lot of people don't like this particular view is it wasn't part of the early church. Remember, it's not about God giving us authority in what the church has done with the Bible throughout the generations. I don't want to be arrogant and not look at it and study it, but God's authority for us is the word of God. So I don't really care if the early church did or didn't believe something other than it's interesting and it may help me think through the scripture a little bit better, but really what it comes down to is what does the Bible say? So I say this was the predominant view on the atonement of Christ, the ransom to Satan doesn't mean it's necessarily the right one. In this case, I'll try to show you it is not. Credited with really codifying and clarifying and teaching this with precision, and I'll put up some smart guys here in church history, is Origen in the third century. Here's, for instance, a quote from Origen about the death of Christ. Note it carefully. Now, it was the devil that held us to whose side we had been drawn away by our sins. So you've got the picture. Our sin put us in league with Satan. He, that is God, asked therefore as our price the blood of Christ. I need Christ to die to free me from the captivity of Satan because Satan, because of my sin, put me there in league with him. In other words, Satan holds people captive. That's the problem. He is there leader. He is the God of this world. The God of, the, of, the, of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, the idea of Satan being the prince of these people, Ephesians chapter 2, prince of the power of the air, all of that understood. Get that. Problem, and I'll add this one to it, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Here's a passage about a pastor being careful not to be argumentative with people in his church that may be arguing about a lot of things they shouldn't be arguing about. And he says, you ought to be not engaging in those quarrels the way they want you to. Uh, you got to learn to correct them. And you've got to do it subtly, sometimes diplomatically, carefully, so that God may perhaps, verse 25, grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth, that they may come to their senses, having escaped the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. So you can see these concepts are certainly clearly in the scripture. And it's important for us to think through the reality of that in context in every case, which we'll try to do. We've got to ask the question, though, is that really what's going on on the cross? Is Christ's death a payment to Satan to have us released? Is that what's happening? Well, one of the words, lutron in this case, uh, the noun, in Mark chapter uh, 10, and Matthew says the same thing as it quotes Christ saying, the Son of Man did not come to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a payment, a ransom, a price to free someone for many people. So there's the idea, there's the word, there's the focus. 
when you think about, okay, Satan clearly has some kind of domination over people. So the death of Christ, that's what happened. The father paid the blood of Christ to let Satan release these people. And if that sounds familiar, as familiar as the writings of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, then you've seen this. I mean, here's the scene from uh, the, the most recent movie on this, as far as I know, where the witch of Narnia is the one who is there brokering this thing when Aslan is, is killed, right? That's the picture. Aslan gives his life to free the kids. The kids now have been captured by the white witch. They have to be released. So he's going to give himself as a payment to release them. Who does he pay that to? He pays it to the devil image, which in this case is the white witch. That picture is what they are reading into the passages about a ransom. The ransom is paid to the devil. And just like in Chronicles of Narnia, the theory goes that when the resurrection came about, that was the deception that God pulls on the on the devil by saying, see there, death can't hold. And I don't remember the words of Narnia. You know, there's dark magic or deep magic or whatever. And so all of this was a trick. And the white witch goes down shaking her fist because she loses in that the payment of, of Aslan, the Christ figure in the story, ends up getting his life back. And everyone's all happy and jolly to use some English words. And off they go into, into the the land of Narnia and everything's fine now. They've defeated the problem of sin. But that picture of seeing the Christ figure die for a transaction with the devil, that's the picture of the ransom to Satan. The problem is in this particular verse that is used and quoted and has been many times in the early church and still is, I suppose, for some, doesn't tell us that the price, and I'll show this later in a different view, is paid to Satan. There's nothing in the Bible that says that Satan is the recipient of the payment of Christ's death on a cross. Certainly not what's stated. Does Satan hold people captive? We see that. Yes, the passages that we look at, though, as it relates to that, does not have anything relating to the atonement as a transaction where Christ somehow does something to free them in paying a payment to them. And most people after the early church certainly got around to saying this doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to square with the rest of scripture. Satan is not the owner. He's owned by God himself. And though he may be uh, influential and oppressive and even possessive to use the colloquial terms, it is certainly not the transaction where God has to stoop to pay Satan off to get his people back. And there wasn't deception going on when God gives Christ on the cross. Some of these will help to fill in why they're not the case as we move forward. Moral example, the moral example. 16th century, Socinus, the theologian, spoke in terms of a moral example that you'll still see used in many liberal-leaning churches today. And that is simply this, that Christ died as an example of obedience to the Father and his trust in the Father. As Peter says, he entrusted himself to the Father even though he was battling the sin of the world. And the battle that was taking place that reached, an ape, that reached an apex on the cross was he was standing up for right, he was standing up for good, and all the sinners around him and all the sin in the culture and all the corruption in the Sanhedrin and all the, the betrayal of his uh, disciple, his apostle Judas, all of that was showing the fighting against the current of the culture and he continued to be faithful and trust himself to God and the ultimate example of of his loyalty to the Father and to, to righteousness and obedience was that he died as a martyr on the cross, this moral example. And clearly you can look at the Bible where he is struggling with that decision where you see, and we've quoted this in Matthew and in Luke, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. 
but he's willing to say, not my will, but yours be done. That certainly becomes an example in the Bible. And that's the point of the moral example theory of the atonement, that we should follow that example no matter how tough it gets at work, no matter how hard it gets in the culture. You ought to stand up for what's right. You ought to trust God. You ought to entrust yourself to God. You ought to be willing to suffer and be persecuted. And you ought to go all the way to the point of death and be a martyr if you have to, because clearly the Bible teaches that. And it does. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Now, for this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So that's true. If, if my back's against the wall and it's deny Christ or stand up for Christ, I want to stand up for Christ, even if it were to cost me everything. And that is a biblical principle. The problem with the moral example is that becomes the mechanism of salvation. I follow his example, and that's sin solution. If you're willing to be resolved even to the point of death to stand up for righteousness and truth, well, then you're going to live the kind of life that God wants, and that's what the death of Christ was all about. To get you on his team is to live with that kind of abandoned and resolve to obedience and fidelity. And you can see where they get that from passages like this. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And that's true. And we teach this passage, and it's very clear that if we are willing to, like Christ, prepare ourselves to suffer and be persecuted and pay whatever cost it is to be obedient, well then, in that case, I'm willing to suffer and I'm substituting obedience for that suffering. And they say, well, that's the whole point. Christ came to defeat sin. He's defeating sin in your life. As you look to the cross, the ultimate example of fidelity to the end, he's the ultimate martyr, sometimes called the martyr theory, the moral example for us. That's what the cross was all about, to help people like us live righteous lives and unrighteous in the unrighteous world. And so for them, the salvation, to, to kind of modernize it, is to say, really, all I'm thinking in every situation that it's difficult is what would Jesus do? And I know Jesus would go all the way to the place of giving his own life to not bend when it comes to righteousness. And that really is what the Christian life is reduced to. And my focus on the cross, every time I go to the church and I sing about the cross or I, I take the Lord's Supper, I'm trying to remind myself, do the same thing. And you can see, obviously, as we've quoted in First Peter, there is definitely truth to this. More on why that's not the whole truth. Moral influence, letter C. This is not the moral example theory or the martyr theory. This is a little different. Uh, Abelard, in the 12th century, this Catholic who, even by his picture, looks a little uh, like he's the kind to sentimentalize God, certainly was the kind to sentimentalize God. This was all about the fact that Christ's death is the ultimate example of love. God loves us. And when we look to the cross, that's what we ought to see. And you think, well, of course, Romans chapter five, verse eight, God shows or demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ is going to pay the ultimate example. No greater love is anyone than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Now he's doing that to show you what it means to love someone. And you ought to first John chapter 3, verse 16, you ought to lay down your life for the brothers. And that's what it's supposed to be, this catalytic kind of, of, of engagement with the cross to get you to realize that's the way I ought to love, and I want to recognize God's love in a way that becomes so profound when I realize that he died on a cross which there's no greater love. In the constant refrain of those who believe in the moral influence theory uh, is this, look at how much God loves you. Look how much he's willing to hurt for you. Look how much pain he's willing to endure just to remind you that he loves you. Therefore, what is there to be afraid of if God loves you that much? 
He really loves you. He's willing to suffer for you. It's is more than just being inconvenienced for you. He is willing to suffer for you because he loves you. It's like one of those sentimentalized current worship songs. He hung on a cross and thought of you above all else, I think is the way the phrase of that, that song goes. Thought of you. That was it. He was thinking of you and willing to hurt and suffer just to show you how much he loves you. Now that ought to have a clarifying and purifying effect in your life. You ought to look at the fact that when he does that for you, he's pleading with you on this great painful sacrifice on the cross. He's pleading with you to see how much your sin hurts him. That's the real demonstration of the cross. And that, as you connect with that, and a lot of these Catholics in particular who started with this, and a lot of Protestants now that hold to this view, the idea is that ought to have a transformative effect as you Think about the depth of his love for you on the cross. That ought to get you to realize, I don't want God to hurt. But that's what he went to the cross for, to remind you how much sin does hurt. And that ought to purify the way you live. It should, that sorrow should draw you, drive you, motivate you. It ought to influence you to improve, which mostly is learning to love. And really that becomes the defining issue in the moral influence theory. That's more than just an example. Even those And you can tell the difference between the moral influence theory and the moral example theory because the example theorists are always looking at the cross saying, look how hard you should be working to be righteous. The moral influence theory is always saying, look how much God loves you. How does that make you feel? Don't you realize how special you are? Don't you realize that God is is pained when you sin? And that's what is expressed on the cross. And Peter, or Pierre, because he's from France, uh, Abelard, if you look into that painting of his face, you might see some modern theologians there emerging who hold to the moral influence theory. Do you know who that is? Who is that? You don't know who that is? Who holds his glasses like that and lives up the coast just a few miles? That's Rob Bell, by the way, Rob Bell. He wrote the book, what's the famous book? New York Times bestseller. I have to educate you on these things. What was it called? Love Wins. Remember that? That's the kind of book that a moral influence theorist on the atonement would write because it's all about love. And that's the focal point. Peter Abelard, that's what he wrote about. That was the whole point, to get us to think that our sin pains the Lord. And the whole point of the cross was to show you how much it pained him, and also to show you how much he loved you. And he's willing to hurt over your sin, and he wants you to love the way that he loves. I found this little poster, which I thought was cool. Please don't let me cry anymore, please. And I know I'm mocking this because it needs to be mocked, but is there an aspect of this that is true? Of course there is. Yeah. Doesn't he demonstrate his love toward us on the cross? Yes. Is there any greater love someone could have than to lay down their life? Sure. But you've got to see that Abelard and the moderns that that hold to this view clearly have sentimentalized the cross to the place where it has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about tonight, the atonement. As a matter of fact, guys like Rob Bell and and the rest of them, Brian McLaren and all these people in the emergent movement, they don't like that phrase anymore. But the idea of this kind of theory of Christ, it's all about the fact that it's about love. And if you call it some kind of atonement for sin because of punishment on, on Christ, then all you're really saying is that God is a, is a child abuser. That's what they call it. The cross is nothing more in your kind of church than cosmic child abuse. That's what these guys say. And what they see on the cross is a man showing you how much sin is bad by, by suffering and having you look into the eyes of God on the cross and realize no one could love me any more than that. How much did he love me? He loved me this much. And when he sees me do bad things, I guess, but I shouldn't say bad things, because really unloving things, well then, he's going to cry, and you shouldn't make God cry. Don't let me cry anymore, please. Hard, hard, hard. All right, all right. There, 
Let's move on. Letter D. A relived, and here's the formal word. I use this one because if you look these things up, you'll want to have this word in this theory. Recapitulation. It's called the recapitulation theory. And what it means is that the atonement took place, the covering of sin took place. And this, I know, doesn't even seem like it belongs here because it really doesn't align itself under the death of Christ. It aligns itself under the life of Christ. But the idea is that Christ lived a life a second time in comparison to Adam. And it's a kind of life that he lived and got it right. And and we'll look at that because, of course, there's some truth to that. Arrhenius, second century, uh, early thinker in the church, had his issues and problems, but one of the things he talked about when he talked about the, say, the, the redemption or atonement of Christ, he said, well, Christ came to live the life the way it should have been lived. Well, if you've been around here, you've read your Bible, you've heard good teaching, you know that's certainly a part of it. He comes to live the life you could not live. He lived life correctly. I've gotten up here and talked about it. Certainly when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I talk not only about his death, I talk about his life. I talk about the fact that his life was lived correctly as a child, as a preteen, as a teenager, as a, as a single, as an adult. He lived the right kind of life. That's absolutely true. Ranius would say, here's what he did. Christ passed through every stage of life. Now, I believe that. But he believes in that act, he basically atoned for sin because he was restoring to all communion with God. The, every stage of life was made right by that. So my trust in Christ to atone for my sin problem really comes down to the fact that I'm looking to the, to the life of Christ and trusting in the life of Christ to be done the way it should be done. They love to talk about, in the recapitulation theory of the atonement, that he was the second Adam. And there's truth to that. Clearly, the Bible calls him that. In Romans chapter 5, or in this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, that is Christ, of course, became a life-giving spirit. So he lived the life that Adam should have lived. He was sent to earth to to carry that out. And really his saving or atoning work was done in the life that he lived for us. Now, is there truth to that? Yes. We can talk and we get to our sanctification week. We'll talk about the act of obedience of Christ and how that relates to sanctification and all that. But right now, I just want to say there's another theory of the atonement that's under the heading, the relived life of Christ or the recapitulation theory of the atonement, which talks about the fact that Christ lived life right, trust in him, and that restores us to God. It really doesn't give the focal point to the death of Christ, which, of course, I've tried to prove at the beginning. Certainly the Bible does that. So there's the truth to that. That's not the whole truth. Letter E. These get a little more nuanced as we move on. The governmental, but I'll give you a word that may be better to remember, and let's call it the token payment. The atonement of Christ on a cross, this is called the governmental theory of the atonement, is a token payment to pay for the problem of sin. Not the way we would teach it from this platform, but in a sense that it was done as emblematically. We'll talk about that. This Dutch theologian in the 17th century, brilliant, smart guy. But when he talked about the uh, atonement, Grotus, he said this. It is an, em- I'm, I'm summarizing. It is an emblematic expression of God's displeasure regarding sin. God obviously hates sin. He sees sin in his people. He's got to deal with sin. And, and he does that by giving Christ's life for sin, but he does it in an emblematic way. I like to put it this way, which I haven't seen theologians put it, but this is the essence of it. It's an offer and compromise. It's like you having a problem with the IRS. It's a debt. It's huge, but they're willing to take a token payment. If you would just make a token sacrifice here and and give what you can, well, then that'll that'll cover the whole thing. That's the idea. It's an, an offer and compromise to settle the problem of sin. It's a token payment 
that's accepted. Now, this is the problem here, and this is, this is how they would state it, to set aside the law's requirement. In other words, the law's requirements are not met in the death of Christ, right? That you would lie and you would be punished for it. If you're an adulterer, you'd be punished this way for it. Or if you're a liar, you'd be you know, punished this way for it. Or you're a coveter. No, it's, it's a token. It's a payment. It's a high payment. And it's the, it's the life of Christ, but it's an emblem or a token payment. And it's done so that the law then will be overlooked as it relates to all the requirements of condemnation. That helps people think through the fact that how can one person die for the sins of so many? We'll talk about that. Perhaps motivated mostly by trying to figure out how this all works. This one gets a little more difficult to distinguish. Let's call this the satisfaction of God's honor. There's a lot of different ways theologians will talk about this particular view, but certainly is the one that most people are going to give the most ink to in any discussion of doctrine or, or biblical theology, and that is to Anselm in the 11th century. Another brilliant thinker as he thinks through the atonement of Christ, but what he's doing is birthing this view from his cultural perspective, which deals more with dignity and honor and the name and the nobility of God, as opposed to what we would like to say, which I think is much more biblical. Let's just start with these points. Payment to satisfy God's honor. He came from a feudal serf kind of arrangement. It was all about honor as opposed to legal payment. I think that's the next way I put it. Sin dishonored God's... No, that's the next one. Sin dishonored God's moral dignity. There has to be a satisfaction and a being made whole. So there is a sense of some legal terminology in this, but it's more relational. It's that there's been disgrace and that needs to be made right. There needs to be some kind of, of payment for the problem that disgraced God. In God's universe, there was a scandal of sin. And there had to be some kind of, of satisfaction that God would say, okay, we're whole now, we're fine. And it had more to do with relationship. And by that, I mean that God's honor was besmirched, that his dignity was in some way violated, that there was a scandal regarding his honor that he created creatures to be godly and they weren't. And therefore, God restored his own honor. He did it himself by God becoming man, right, the second person of the Godhead, and he solved the problem. He extends the solution. So there's so many aspects to Anselm's idea of the satisfaction of God's honor theory that certainly we would agree with. But it certainly is less legal, as we'll see, than what we would want to see in a biblical statement of the atonement of Christ. His view overshadows a lot of the legal aspects we'll, we'll get into. G, and all I want to do is give you the words for this, legal substitution. I'll call it that. Sometimes it's called penal substitution, the payment of sin, but substitutionary atonement. You've heard me say that, I trust, over the years. If you've been here listening to my teaching or anybody who's, I hope, touting what I think is the biblical view of, of the atonement. Penal substitution. It's been thrown under the bus by the likes of McLaren and Rob Bell and all the rest, saying it's nothing more than cosmic child abuse. It's nothing more than God saving us from himself. Uh, fine. We'll look at the biblical view of all this, but the idea of legal substitution is how we would characterize it. My view, legal substitution, penal substitution, substitutionary atonement. And to figure that out and to spend the rest of our time defining that, we've got to start with some important New Testament words on the back of your worksheet. Two important words, because you'll see them all over the New Testament. Obviously, we're reading English, so you won't see the Greek words. They're translated in the same way. But let's start with this Greek word, anti. A-N-T-I is our transliteration of it. You'll see it in verses like this, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We've already quoted this, but let's quote it again. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, anti-many, anti, for many. That's how it's translated. And when we say many, 
we'll see throughout the New Testament what we're talking about in relation to Christ's death is the definitions, the context, the way this is presented, and we'll round out the picture tonight. The idea is in, in the place of. He gave himself as a payment in the place of other people. Other people had a payment to pay, but he paid it for them. Ante, translated for, in the place of. That's all I got to say on that, letter B. Huper, huper, very common Greek preposition, very important, translated the same way. Take a look at this, for instance, John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. I got sheep, they got a problem. And the good shepherd's going to lay down his life, huper, the sheep, huper, for the sheep. What do we mean? Well, for the benefit of the sheep. The sheep are going to be benefited by the fact that I've laid down my life for them. We see this all over the New Testament, and it's very short. He dies for us. Well, what do we mean? Ante, he dies for in the place of us. Ante, or huper, he dies for the benefit of us. We see that all over the place. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. We deserve it, but he hasn't destined us for that. We're his children. We're destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died, who pair us, who pair for us, for the benefit of us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. So now we're his friends, we're his children, we're in his family. We're not the ones that are going to receive his just recompense for sin or his just anger because he died for us, for the benefit of us, so that we don't have that liability anymore. Ante and who pair. Hard to overstate the importance of these two little words. You'll see them everywhere when you see a statement about Christ dying for our benefit or dying in our place. And with that foundation, let's move quickly on. The Old Testament picture. We can't create our view of the atonement in the New Testament without the benefit of clearly thinking through and understanding the Old Testament. Follow me here. When you see New Testament statements regarding our atonement, our forgiveness, our covering of sin, we've got all these books, 39 of them in the Old Testament, pointing to the New Testament realities and establishing a foundation that helps me think about the problem of sin and how it is symbolically solved. Well, I know this, the picture throughout the Bible as it relates to the word atonement always brings me back to the idea of the innocent taking the place of the guilty. The innocent has to be symbolically provided in the way that worship took place. And it all started with this picture, did it not? In the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, when they were coming out of Egypt, the last plague, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, the lamb that you're supposed to bring has got to be a certain kind of lamb. From the beginning of the Old Testament, in the second book that sets up a sacrificial system, all the way to the book of Malachi, when it ends. And and in Malachi, what is he complaining about? You're bringing animals that are not your best. You're bringing animals that are blemished. You're bringing animals that are crippled. You're bringing animals that are flawed in some way. So the picture is always this best animal that you can find has to be without blemish. It has to be the best. It's going to be a young one without blemish. You can take it from your herds and your sheep, your goats, bring out that animal, but make sure it's without blemish. You're going to keep it with you to the 14th day of the month. So everyone's going to get used to this little lamb, this year old lamb skipping about your house. And then you're going to assemble the assembly in the congregation of Israel and you're going to kill your lambs at twilight. Wow. And then you know what happens next. Take the blood, put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel, destroying angel comes, he is going to pass over your house. He's not going to come and take your firstborn. They'll be wailing in Egypt tonight because of the death of the firstborn, but you're going to get out of it, not because God looks at you and says, you're good people, they're bad people, but because there was the innocent dying in the place of the guilty, because there's someone that is symbolically innocent, an animal without blemish, spilling its blood, 
so that you can be forgiven by God who could just as well take you and kill you the way he's killing the Egyptians because, of course, we're not without sin. So that picture of blood over the archway, over the doorpost in Egypt as Israel makes makes its way out is the foundation of this picture that then develops in the worship of Leviticus that helps us understand the idea of sacrifice. And at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 1, when we get all the explanation of the sacrificial system, it starts with this. If his offering, talking about the worshiper, is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall take this, he shall offer this male without blemish. There it is again. There's the picture of something that is innocent, something that is not messed up, For messed up people, he's going to bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Okay, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. My conscience tells me that. The reading now of the Torah that's just been delivered to Moses, even just the tablets, give me a clear picture that I'm a sinner. And now I want to be accepted before God. I want this sin problem atoned for. And the book of Leviticus is filled with that word, kafar. It's everywhere. I want that sin somehow dealt with before a holy God so that he does not impugn my life or or punish me because of my sin well take an animal you can be accepted but that animal is going to have to be bound and tied on the altar and that innocent animal will die in your place in the new testament the apex of redemption it's not about animals of course it's about the coming christ and that picture way back from exodus chapter 12 is revived to make it very clear for us what we're dealing with with the death of christ He's speaking here of hypocrisy and the the sin cleaned out the leaven. There's the picture even in Exodus, the symbol of the problem of sin. Don't let it get in your life. Don't let it get in your home. Clear it out. You can be a new lump, a new batch. You really are that. You're, You're born again. You're different now. Regeneration, more on that in weeks to come. For Christ, here's the reference, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. See, that makes no sense to try and understand the sacrifice of Christ on a cross if I don't go back in my mind thinking, what's this all about in the Old Testament? The innocent has to die for the guilty so the guilty can be accepted and forgiven and passed over from punishment. That's the picture of Christ. He is the lamb that is slain, the perfect one, the innocent one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, there's our word again, Lutron, we're purchased from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Can't buy your way out of the sin problem with money. But you were purchased with what? The precious blood of Christ. Here's the image. You look for it in the Bible, in the New Testament, you'll see it everywhere. Oh, it's like a lamb without blemish or spot. See, he's the perfect one. He's the sinless one, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He now dies. And that picture of sacrifice is like the lamb that was brought without blemish repeatedly required to bring without any defect. Here was a life without defect that is now being sacrificed on a cross for us. That's why even these emergents that love to write about this idea of the moral influence theory, and they don't even call it that. Some of them probably don't even know that, I suppose. But the idea that this is just an expression of love has no foundation or root in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And you cannot understand atonement and redemption or the death of Christ without it. Letter B. Certainly the transfer of guilt is a big part of this. Now you picture this. We didn't even get out on our own as a, as a nation without the assembling of a worship center called the tabernacle. And at the centerpiece of that, I know it's a small picture, but you know at the centerpiece of that is an altar. And that altar is the picture for us as we remember that as the smoke rises from the altar. And I, I, I kind of jokingly call it the big hibachi, but it's just a big barbecue there where animals are dying it smells really good as you go to the center of the camp but the picture in the ceremony there is this 
Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. I'm supposed to come to worship, lay my hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it's going to be accepted for me as a worshiper to make atonement for me. That's what's taking place. I'm putting my hand physically on the head of the animal and showing the symbolic that the transfer of my guilt goes to that innocent animal. That's the picture. Now, of course, it's all symbolic because as Hebrew says, it's not the blood of bulls and goats that can ever expiate our sin. It can never take care of our sin problem. But the picture was there to show us how Christ would redeem us, the transfer of guilt. When you walked into that courtyard and later Solomon's huge, you know, gold-gilded worship center, at the center of it was the, was the altar, at least the center of it that you could see and go into. You couldn't go into the holy place or the holy of holies. But in that courtyard, you would worship beginning with the transfer of your guilt to that animal in a symbolic way. That's why, whether he fully comprehended it or not, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming on the horizon and he says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The idea of the transfer of my guilt to him and his death for my acceptance is the core of the doctrine of the atonement. There's the picture. Next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, you can see, even in this room, it gets a little uncomfortable talking about animals dying and saying that the center of the worship center, you had this altar and, and you transferred your guilt to this animal in a symbol. I mean, that gets uncomfortable because, you know, we're watching commercials about animals and the, the, the heartstrings of people are, are... But you see, this is the, the bloody and, and very uncomfortable center of our theology. And if we don't have the problem of sin clearly in, in view, like I tried to preach this weekend at our church, then we don't even understand the solution in Christ. How can I understand the gracious solution of Christ dying for me if I don't understand the heinousness of sin? The, 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 the more you get into liberal theology or in our day, this watered-down church that goes on in our, in our culture, you're going to move further and further away from any thought of the sacrificial uh, system of the Old Testament or the bloody sacrifice of Christ as a necessary transference of my guilt to that innocent so that I can be accepted before God. Christological prophecies. When you look at these, and you need to turn to this one in your Bibles, Isaiah 53... We need to just walk through this one, which is probably the most dramatic and clear prophecy that we can look at in the Bible as a Christological prophecy about what Christ would be. And again, don't read a passage like this without this building in view. Here is the smoke rising from this huge altar that sits out in front of this gilded building that Solomon had built. And in the day of Isaiah, when he speaks of these things, that's the image in your mind. Isaiah chapter 53. If you all turn there, please look at this passage with me beginning in verse number five. We'll walk through this together. Thinking about what we've just said would be the conditioning of every Jewish person in the Old Testament. You were not one right with God, seeking God, wanting God, praying to God, caring about God, unless you knew the reality of blood being spilt in the worship center to remind you of your guilt, your unacceptable status before God, and the need for the transfer of guilt so that you could be accepted. That, that is the backdrop for all Old Testament worship. Now... This is said of the coming Messiah, of the suffering servant, who was not only depicted as a king who would reign and rule and everyone would bow and submit to, but now he's pictured quite differently. For the sake of time, let's drop into verse 5. But he was pierced, speaking in the prophetic perfect, we call it, this past tense as completed action, though it was yet to come, many years to come. 
But he, Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. That makes no sense. If we're the transgressors, we should be pierced. Well, that's the thing. If I'm a sinner and the wages of sin is death, when I come to worship, I should be slain on an altar. No, the animal's going to. There's going to be the killing of an animal to depict the fact that I can somehow go free, penalty-free, because someone else suffers. There's the picture. Pierced, someone here, the suffering servant, the Christ, would be pierced for our transgressions. He was going to be crushed for our iniquities. It's not fair. It doesn't seem right. Why is he crushed and not me? Because I need atonement. I want atonement. I'm, I'm pleading for God's gracious atonement. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I want to be accepted to God. I want God to like me. I want God to accept me. I would like God to have his favor rest on me. Well, the only way to get that is to have my sin problem somehow dealt with. Pierced for transgression, crushed for our iniquity, so that I can have peace, and with his wounds, I can be healed. Now, if you want some televangelist to quote this about, you know, your flu or your illness or your malady, that is not the context of this passage. We're dealing with much deeper, richer, profound truths than whether or not you live a healthy life. That's not the point here. The point is the acceptance before God, just like Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is a picture of substitution. I get fixed. I get healed. I get the blemishes gone. This is not about my skin. This is about the blot of sin on my account. I get that all fixed because someone else suffers in my place. Someone else is pierced. Someone else is crushed. Someone else is chastised, and it's not me. There's the picture of substitution. Verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. There's the admission of guilt. We see the problem. I haven't followed the good shepherd, which isn't just Christ. I mean, that clearly was what he called himself, which would have been blasphemous for anyone who knew the Old Testament because one of the most famous Psalms of all, Psalm 23, the Lord, Yahweh, is our shepherd. We should follow him, but we don't. We don't follow him as we should. We stray all the time off the course. Well, that's the reality of verse 6. So what did God, what did God do? Well, he, he punished us. No, he laid the iniquity of that wandering of that transgression. He, he laid on him, the suffering servant, the coming Messiah, the iniquity of us all. So now one life, one sacrifice cleanses all of us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Now that's what we should be because of our sin, but we're not. Well, look at him. He didn't open his mouth. What was this one like? As John put it, like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he did not open its mouth. Now his mouth. Think about that picture. Again, because every single week you're bringing sacrifices to the worship center, you can't think of the death of a a lamb that silently sits there as the priest draws the knife on the neck of the animal. You can't think of that without the sacrificial system in view. And this context clearly speaks to the problem. Sin needs to be atoned for. Sin has to be paid for. Now we got the coming Messiah going to be like a sheep that is silent and does not open his mouth and willingly takes on the iniquity and the affliction and the crushing that we deserve, the transfer of guilt. Verse 5, substitution. Verse 6 and 7, the transfer of guilt. More on substitution. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Well, wait a minute. He's innocent. He's like, a, like this lamb without blemish. As for his generation, who considered we can, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So here is our gang, supposed to, having the, supposed to have the favor of God resting on us. Well, it's not animals that's going to deal with the problem. The transgression of the people is going to be dealt with by having the Messiah incur the penalty for us. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, and when he was with a rich man in his death. There's so many Christological connections to how this plays out in the Gospels, but I don't have time to draw those connections. You know them, many of them. Although he had done no violence, and there is no deceit in his mouth. 
The Bible's very, very clear. You may be someone who's not violent, but no one can restrain the tongue. Not just, it's not just the New Testament James truth. This is a truth throughout the Bible. So who is this person that has no deception at all ever in their mouth? This is the perfect one, the Messiah. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why is that? Doesn't seem right. The innocent who has committed no sin, who doesn't even lie, has never deceived anyone with his mouth, he's going to be crushed. Yeah, the Lord's going to crush him, putting him to grief when his soul... When, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, again, you can't use those phrases without thinking about the fact that they're so conditioned to think about guilt offerings from Leviticus, and they're doing it every week, and to say, now, you got the soul of the coming Messiah being put to grief, and the one who's killing this one is the Lord. The Lord is killing the Messiah, making him a guilt offering? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. This was not the duping of Satan. This was God's plan, the conquering of the sacrifice of the perfect one. Yet he's going to see his offspring, his people, as it's put earlier. How's he going to do that? It's called the resurrection. He's going to prolong his days, and and the will of the Lord is going to prosper in his hands. How can that possibly take place if he's been put to death and crushed by the Father? Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So the anguish of the soul of the suffering servant, the Messiah, is going to be seen by the one who's just crushed him, and he's going to be, strange way to put it, satisfied. You'd think he'd be sad. If this is the moral influence theory, you think, well, it's just a, it's a, it's a ball of sadness. In this case, it's the satisfaction of something that God is feeling, that the Father is feeling this sense of something's made right here, something is fixed here. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be, here's an important word, accounted righteous. Now, I get, just like in Leviticus 1.4, the transfer of my guilt onto the innocent, blemishless lamb, and then I go away with a sense of, I'm right with God. I'm forgiven. I'm as though I were the innocent one. And there's the picture. The picture of one being accounted as righteous because I've never sinned? No, because my iniquity is borne by the substitute. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. How can that be? Resurrection. Because he poured out his soul to death. Just to make it clear, he's not just crushed and, and knocked down. He's dead. He's dead and he's died. He's numbered with the transgressors on a, on a Roman cross with criminals. Yet he bore the sins of many. He was dying as that substitute, like a, a, a guilt offering, and making intercession for the transgressors. Here are sinners being counted righteous because of a death on a cross of an innocent one who didn't even deceive with his mouth ever in his life. There's a picture of substitutionary atonement, of sinners counted as righteous, as the transfer of guilt, the picture that you've seen throughout the whole Old Testament, is now prophetically looked forward to in the Christ, in the Christos, in the Messiah, the one who would be anointed prophet, priest, and king, the Christ that we worship every week here at our church. Now, when the New Testament comes around, it starts to clearly give us images and descriptions of this. Let's talk about four of them. Letter A, sacrifice, which is no surprise. The Old Testament was all about sacrifice. The Christological promises were all about sacrifice. And so, of course, in patches, passages like this in Hebrews chapter 9, if you can read it from where you're at, it's up on the screen. If the bloods, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's important. It's ceremonial. If that somehow makes people right, your sin now is in some way ceremonially, I'm now considered right. Well, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, this is not an animal now, 
offered himself without blemish. There's the phrase again. That should ring bells in our minds. That's the sacrificial system that started in the Passover at Exodus chapter 12. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now I really do have access. Now I really am accepted. Now I really am made right. Now I really have peace with him. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant. It's not like the old one. So that those who, have, who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. I'd like that. I can't get that because I'm a sinner. Oh, I guess I can because Christ has cleansed my conscience. Christ has cleaned me. Christ has taken my sin, though they're like scarlet, and made them white as snow. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. All these things tie perfectly together and beautifully together. In this picture that in context is all about the day of atonement when sacrifice was made in a wholesale way for the nation of Israel. There's no way to look at the theories of the atonement, certainly the ones that are common today, these views of a moral example or a martyr's theory that makes me think I just got to stand up for what's right or, you know, it's all about an expression of God's love. When you have these pictures of sacrifice and Christ saying things like this in the upper room that as he's expressing the fruit of the vine, and he calls it the fruit of the vine even after he says, this is my blood. Clearly, this is symbolic because he says, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine until I drink it again with you anew in the kingdom. But he says ceremonially here, I'm about to die on a cross. You're going to see a lot of blood in the next 24 hours. But listen, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, you wouldn't have to read the book of Isaiah twice to say, oh, I remember that. I've heard that. And of course, these guys knew what that was. They understood it. Even if you grew up as a fisherman, you went to Sabbath school, you heard the scriptures read in in the synagogue, and you understood what it was that this blood covenant, this promise of, of forgiveness was the one that Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 31. There would be a cleansing. It's this thing that Jesus had to chide uh, Nicodemus in John, in John 3 for not getting a full grasp on what it meant to be right with God. I'm not saying they weren't dense and oftentimes miss these things, but Jesus tried to make this crystal clear. I'm going to die on a cross as a substitution. Guilt is going to be transferred. Acceptance is going to be purchased, just like the sacrificial system symbolized. Letter B, propitiation. Unfortunately, NIV kind of hid this word. ESV, it's a hard word, and sometimes translators have, have a problem just throwing it to us the way that some of the older translations did. But the ESV has this, which I think is helpful, the word propitiation. If you look it up in a dictionary, I don't know if it'll have exactly the definition that we would want or that is painted for us in the scripture. But the idea of propitiation is that sense that we get there from Isaiah 53 verse 11, that out of the anguish of his soul, the one who crushed him will see it and be satisfied. There will be a suitable payment that says you bore the iniquities successfully. You've paid the penalty. You've been crushed. They've been made right. There is a suitable payment that satisfied the justice of God. First John chapter four, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be this suitable payment that satisfied God's justice for our sins. He became the propitiation, the payment. I think the dictionary might have definitions like uh, appeasement of a deity or something like that. But the idea is not that he's angry in some capricious way and he, he needs to be given a candy bar, a snicker bar, so that he'll calm down or anything. This is the idea of there's an injustice because sin needs punishment. How are we going to deal with the problem? I'm going to send my own son with infinite worth, and he's going to pay for the sins of the people through the payment that satisfies my holy justice. That's, that word depicts that there in 1 John 4.10, propitiation. We see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. He, that is the son in the context, Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
had to put on humanity and be completely 100% human, even though he didn't lay aside his deity, some of the independent exercise of his attributes he did, but he didn't lay aside his deity. So deity, humanity blended together, and I shouldn't say blended together, uh, not commingled, these two natures of Christ accomplishing the holiness that we need and the humanity sharing the the, the flesh and blood of, of, of his brothers, he might become then our representative before God. He can bring human payment. He can bring human righteousness to the Father and make the payment. Animals can't do that. He becomes a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, satisfaction, a satisfying, suitable payment for the problem of sin, for the sins of the people. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his death, in his blood. We can receive that by faith, to be received by faith. This was to show God's justice or his righteousness. This, this word translated righteousness is the idea of being right and being just. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, but it was now he's going to clean the slate, pay the price. He wasn't going to overlook it through ceremonies of bulls and, and goats and lambs. But he's going to show his justice, his righteousness at the present time, in the present age, because of the death of Christ, to show that he might be just. That means he's not going to violate his own character and his own justice. And the justifier, I'm going to solve my own problem here, of the one who has faith in Christ. And while they may mock us, and McLarens and the bells of the world can mock us all they want, we are being saved from the Father. That's the point. God comes and saves us, which is the picture I painted in week one. God comes and saves us from his own wrath. His just penal penalty, the substitute of our, of our sin, is provided by God himself. And if you really want to say, what are we talking about? The red circle here, that's, this is what we're talking about. Where does the wrath of God meet the solution of God? Where does the wrath of God find its satisfaction? And that's, in this sense, I guess, every illustration breaks down at some point. And an umbrella doesn't absorb the rain. But that's really what happened on the cross. There was a complete, acceptable payment. A satisfaction of God's justice because the wrath or the punishment of God was absorbed in the human life of Christ. And it was of infinite worth because he's deity. That's the picture. And we explained all that week one, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I guess I should quote that. For it's in the righteousness of God, it's revealed from heaven, from faith to faith. It was written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, okay, so the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven? Yes, and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Where do they meet? In the cross. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, going to come, and the uh, wrath of God is going to come, and together they're going to meet, and and one is going to absorb the other. So that by faith, as it says in this passage, we can trust him and, and... have that wrath absorbed in the cross. Redemption. Okay, here's where the, the subpoints go. Letter C number five, not letter C number four. Redemption. We've got the picture in the Bible of the atonement being sum, summarized by the word redemption. Three words used and translated that way in the New Testament. Agorazo. Agorazo is the first word. Agorazo is the picture, redemption, of purchasing, and specifically throughout most of the New Testament, purchasing, the image here, is someone in the slave market. I'm going to buy a slave. There's the picture in the Greco-Roman world, which again is not American slavery. Not that there weren't abuses in the Greco-Roman world. Of course there were, but professionals to workers, field workers were slaves. You had all, you had dentists, you had doctors, you had professors, you had lawyers, you had every spectrum, you know, everybody on the spectrum 
a big percentage of people, large percentage of people were slaves and people would purchase them. And it was a, an arrangement that's much more all-encompassing, obviously, than employment that we're used to. But so a common analogy here, and the analogy is if someone sells themselves in slavery, they're part of the slave market, you can go and make a purchase in the slave market and, and buy that person. And that's the depiction of ownership. So in the death of Christ, in the atonement, there was this picture of Christ dying to purchase us. And there you see words, you see verses like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Okay, that's great. I got the gift of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, and you're not your own. Well, I don't know. I like to think I'm my own, and he just kind of added the Spirit to my life. No, no, no. You were agarazod. You were bought with a price. Therefore, that body is mine, God says. So the idea of the Christian life is I was purchased by God. Now, of course, I should understand because he made me. I'm God's by virtue of him, him being my creator. But I'm also his now as a Christian, doubly so, because now I've been purchased by Christ's death. There's the idea. I've been bought, agarazzo. So that's the first word, to depict the idea of ownership. Then this word, which you can see it's a compound, ex agarazzo, and we learned this Greek preposition from a lot of compounds in our language. It means out of, to purchase someone out of the slave market. So the idea of a focused purchase within the slave market, I'm going to buy that person. That's the purchase of ownership. I'm, I'm buying them. Now the idea is you're no longer going to be a part of this slave market. I'm buying you out of it. The depiction here is not just ownership, but deliverance. You're no longer going to be in the slave market and no one else can buy you. This is a person not subject to resale, if you will. You're not going to be resold. You've been purchased and now you're not a part of that anymore. So in that sense, you're, you're freed, you're delivered. So ex agarazzo has the idea of you're, you're, you're purchased out of. Just in the, in the plain sense, agarazzo, you're purchased. Ex agarazzo, you're purchased out of. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Here's the word. Christ ex agarazzoed me, or us, from the curse of the law. We're no longer part of that. We no longer have the penalty of that. We don't have the curses that come with it. If you break it, you're going to get this penalty. We don't have that arrangement anymore with the law. I will not incur the punishment or the condemnation of the law. Because it is written, cursed everyone who's hanged on a tree. So he got cursed for me. There's the substitutionary atonement aspect. Redemption is I've been purchased out of that arrangement. The law can no longer punish me. I can be disciplined by the Father. We'll talk about it in our sanctification. But I am not any longer a part of that arrangement. No longer a part of the curse of the law. Ex agarazzo. Number three, lutrao. Lutrao. This is like lutron. This is the verb form. Lutron is the noun form. We saw in another passage earlier. This is to set free, but the focus of this word is the payment. You've been paid a ransom to be set free. This depicts the idea throughout the New Testament. You're not free free. You're free no longer to be subject to the slave market, but now you're free to serve this new master. This is your new freedom. Your freedom is to a good and benevolent master, the master who made you. And this is the way things ought to be. This is the teleos arrangement, as I often like to say. This is the way it ought to be. This is just right. It can only get more right when we have our bodies redeemed. But for now, the main rightness of it, if you will, is the fact that we are now connected, reconnected with our, with our maker. It depicts freedom to serve a new master. Like the series we preached not too long ago, probably was a long time ago, uh, set free to live right. right. We're not free as the way a lot of moderns like to think of redemption, that we're free to do whatever we want. We're free to obey the new master that has purchased us. Here's a good example. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to that. Who gave himself for us to, now you can see, latrao is, is translated redeem, but the idea is paid a price to get us out of something to enslave us, as it says in Romans 6, to God, a new master. Verse 14, who gave himself to latruo us, 
from all lawlessness and to purify for himself now a people for his own possession. Now you're mine. You're zealous to do my will, my good works. You're going to walk in my good path. That's the idea of your, your own now and you're out of the market and you're off the market and you're not subject to resale and now you're here to serve my agenda. Freed from the old to serve the new. Lastly, letter D, reconciliation. The Bible speaks of the atonement in terms of reconciliation. That at the cross, I was reconciled. What are we talking about? Reconciliation, we know that word in our common language, but the idea of divine reconciliation is the the state of alienation, the problem of hostility, that we were enemies with God has been solved. The state of alienation, the state of hostility, the state of being his enemy has now been changed. It's the picture, as I depicted on week one, of that barrier being removed to unite two hostile parties. Two hostile parties now are allies. They're friends. Two enemies are now on the same team because the barrier that stood between them has been dealt with. And that took place on the cross. Pictures here of that, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So I got made right with God and the barrier removed by the death of his son. Again, you look at some of the theories of the atonement, you start to say, that's missing that picture. That's missing that aspect. Substitutionary atonement is the only picture that encompasses all of these things the way it ought to. Sacrifice and, and, and redemption and reconciliation. Much more now that we are reconciled, we're going to be saved by his life. There's no longer a barrier. It's not just like we were plucked off the ship and floating on a, on a barge or on a, on, a, on a life raft. We've been reconciled to God. The barrier of sin is gone. Clearly, we're going to be saved, and God is going to bless us. We're going to make it to the kingdom. God's going to do what he's intended to do by pouring out his favor and his blessing on us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. This is full of the word, constant use of the word reconciliation. Look at all the forms of it here, though. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, we want, want to be more specific. It wasn't just through his life. It was through his death. We were reconciled through the death of Christ. He gave us now the ministry of reconciliation. We have a job now to do that is like Christ, not that we can be the death that reconciles anybody and takes the barrier of sin away, but I can introduce them to that person. I now have the ministry to see people reconciled to God. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Every time someone's forgiven, that's, that's the point. And now every time he saves someone, he gives them the ministry of reconciliation. Follow me, reconciliation, and I'll make you fishers of men. You'll go out and be an agent of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. Making, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The problem of sin dealt with only through the death of Christ must be preached. That's the point. I I thought and and purpose to know nothing among you, but the cross of Christ, that's the idea. The only means of reconciliation, as Romans 5 verse 10 says, is the death of Christ. Ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All right. Believe it or not, I am done early. It's rare that that happens. So that means you don't have to rush out. You should at least chit-chat for seven minutes. All right, let me pray for us. And we'll have a couple of announcements and we'll let you go. God, I know this was a lot. It was varied. It was all over the map. But when it comes down to it, it's about us thinking in a more comprehensive biblical way about what took place on the cross. We don't want to just focus on one small aspect. For instance, that you set a pattern down for us in the way that you died, that we ought to be like that. We shouldn't lash out. We should entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly, just like Christ did when he went to the cross. We understand that. There are aspects that are certainly helpful in our sanctification, but the point of the death of Christ for our justification has got to be understood in this very uncomfortable picture of the death and sacrifice of the innocent to clear the guilty. 
the transfer of guilt from us to you by faith to reconcile us. God, when we want to tidy up our theology so that there's no picture of that, clearly we're going to run into heresy real fast. So help us never to lose our edge in what the cross was all about. And that's going to have to happen when we continue to remember what sin is, what the problem of sin is, how alienating sin is before you, that you're not just grieved by our sin, but you are angered, righteously angry, indignant about our sin problem. But God, we are thankful that because of Christ, though we fall and we fail and we've gone like sheep in every different direction, you've laid our iniquity on your own son, willing to crush him and have him be treated as though he were the sinner so that you could treat us as though we were the righteous ones. Thank you, God, for that transaction. Help us to celebrate that more often in our praying and our thanksgiving and certainly in our worship and our study of your word. Thanks for this crew and our chance to study this all together tonight. Give us a good kind of a percolation of these truths, a cogitation of these truths. Give us a good uh, reminiscing of these truths as we wrap up our evening tonight and as we work through tomorrow doing whatever it is we're called to do. And I pray that you would just let these truths enrich our thinking about what you've done for us. That might bring a profound sense of joy and thanksgiving and security to us. So thanks God for all of this and for the time to do it in Jesus' name.